Hi, friends, and thank you so much for tuning in to a new episode of the podcast. Um, I also want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been sharing such positive feedback on this new podcast of mine. Um, just in general, I love chatting with you guys in my DMs and trading theories and ideas around um, everything that's involving these cases, but hearing your positive feedback is really encouraging um, about the podcast, but also I love hearing that you guys find justiceformarylamanson.com super helpful. That really makes me happy because my goal really is to hopefully help people get information in a way that is easy and but at the same time not preach to you and let you kind of read through things and form your own conclusions because I think that's really, really important. But I do also really hope that the content that I share is hopefully helpful to anyone who's totally new diving into the maze that is this Marilyn Manson situation because truthfully, there is a lot to cover. There is really so much ground to cover when navigating all the different parties involved within the active cases. So if I can be your tour guide or make your life easier in any capacity whatsoever, that's a win-win for both of us because I'm here to help. So today we're going to be talking about one party in particular by the name of Ashley Ilma Gore. An interesting thing about is that she's never personally met or spoken to Marilyn Manson, but behind the scenes, she has played an active role in the damaging of his career and public reputation. Her name first surfaced to most of us on March 2nd, 2022, when Manson filed against her as well as actress Evan Rachel Wood a lawsuit. Now, coincidentally, wink, wink, March 2nd is... Elma Gore's birthday, which may be a happy accident, but if I'm being honest, it probably wasn't an accident at all. And when you read through Marilyn Manson's lawsuit, you do start to kind of understand why he's suing her in general, as well as maybe why he had a little fun delivering her this lawsuit on her birthday. His lawsuit brought to light a lot of accusations that probably no one saw coming, including Ilma Gore impersonating a federal agent, drafting a forged FBI letter with screenshots provided to back this up, hacking into his accounts, impersonating him online, creating a fictitious email to manufacture fake evidence that he was distributing illicit material of minors, spreading an extremely false rumor that he produced child porn in the 90s and more. But before we get to any of that, and I promise, I promise we will, I want to start by looking at Ashley Ilmagore just as a person, because who is she? What's her backstory? What motivates her? What does she care about? So those are the type of things that I wanted to explore first before we dive into what allegations are made against her. Before we dive in, I do want to put a little brief disclaimer out there. I know that people that have been following the Marilyn Manson cases for a while do not like Ilma Gore. And a lot of people think she's a crook. A lot of people think she's super shady, has an agenda, is exploitive, yada, yada, yada. And I get it. I hear that and I get it. But the reason I started this podcast was to help those who do not know anything about the Manson situation get up to speed. So Elma Gore is an important person to discuss, and I think in doing so, it's important to understand more on her background. And so that's why I spent quite a bit of time navigating through her history and pulling together information to try and get a better sense of who this person is before she entered the fold of Evan Rachel Wood and Brian Warner aka Marilyn Manson. We will get there, I promise, of course, 
But first, let's talk a little bit about her background. So get yourself a drink or a snack, sit back and relax for a chat about Ms. Gore. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Born on March 2nd, 1992, Ashley Elmagore is an Australian-American woman who is the identical twin of her sister, Brighton. Their parents are Karen and Michael, with her mom an artist and, at one point, a gallery director, and her father a rather successful Australian land developer. Most notably, he developed the luxury resort called Sanctuary Cove on Hope Island, And while I've never been there, I did look up their website, and it just looks gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Sadly, though, Michael went on to tragically pass away from a heart attack on December 16th, 1994, when the Gore twins were just two years old. After this, Ilma told a media outlet called Narratively that her mom never got over the death of their father, and that she continued to struggle with alcoholism, as well as multiple mental health issues. Her heavy drinking only amplified with time, and despite having been to rehab, she continued to just resist sobriety throughout the girl's childhood. Living with an alcoholic mother struggling with mental health understandably created an unstable and an abusive home environment for the Gore twins that really lasted into their young teens. To escape a bad situation, they eventually left home at the young age of 13 and became homeless. Essentially, they were living on the streets for a period of time, bouncing between friends' couches, sleeping on local beaches, and even sleeping on local park benches. Child services eventually intervened and attempted to mediate to bring the girls home, but their mom, Karen, no, she was defiant. She would not welcome the girls home, and she even had the locks changed on them. My heart broke reading about all of this and learning more about Omagore's upbringing as well as her sister Brighton's because I cannot even imagine losing one parent at a young age like that, and then your surviving parent essentially wants nothing to do with you because she's struggling so much with her mental health and substance abuse. It's really, really a heartbreaking situation, and I can't even imagine at that young age being responsible for myself. So I have to give a lot of love to the girls for that. After their mom was not going to let them come back home, they were ultimately emancipated, and Ilma and Brighton were then fully responsible for caring for themselves. Other family relationships were frayed, so they really continued to have no support system within their lives. And from there, Ashley Elmagore developed a bit of a rebellious side, which I have to say I kind of understand because I might be a little angry and rebellious myself given her upbringing. But she went through a really rebellious streak, and at one point she was even expelled from her school. In general, it was just a really rocky period with no stability, and sadly, the relationship with their mom never improved. She later passed away on December 16, 2009, from cirrhosis of the liver and alcohol-induced hepatitis. In 2013, Ilma Gorham made the move from her original home of Brisbane, Australia, to the States, where she's lived in both California and Florida. She does continue to travel between the U.S. and Australia, but has continued to primarily reside in the States for many years and votes in our election. In terms of what's important to Ashley Elmagor, you could easily say that art 
is near the top of that list. Her mom was a painter, and so she grew up around painting. But in addition to painting, Elma went on to also create a number of performance art pieces. And art is ultimately how she started to make a name for herself through a series of eye-catching projects. An early example of this would be in 2013, Elma Gore made news by riding topless on a bike with her back reading, my shirt didn't match my human rights. This performance stunt did catch the eye of people and got them talking, which all in all makes it a pretty successful venture on her part. Ilma's body also became a canvas in 2015 when she launched the Human Canvas Project. This is a project where in exchange for a donation, Ilma says that she was going to tattoo the name of contributors or design of their choice onto her body. BuzzFeed reported that over 200 donors contributed to the Human Canvas Project and that more than $11,000 was raised that would be donated to a nonprofit in LA called SPY, Safe Place for Youth, that supports homeless youth within the greater Los Angeles area. However, it's unclear if donations ever made it into the hands of the charity because Kickstarter the platform suspended the fundraiser. They terminated the project with no direct public reason given, but when you review their community guidelines, there are things like misrepresentation, misleading imagery, and just dishonesty in general that could lead to fundraisers being shut down. Ashley Omagor also worked on a number of large murals, including one with actress Ruby Rose of the Netflix series Orange is the New Black, and that mural was displayed displayed actually in New York City's Times Square. So that's a pretty big deal. In another project, Gore used the blood of 60 people that was donated to her. That's right. She used real human blood from 60 people as paint to recreate Betsy Ross's American flag. The mural was called Rise Up the Young and was unveiled the Sunday before Donald Trump's presidential inauguration in January 2017. Now, to some, a mural of blood might sound pretty weird and gross, but I actually think that's a pretty interesting concept. So, of all her art pieces, I would say that one is probably my favorite. But, in terms of which one is her most famous art project, that is a painting that Elma Gore made in 2016 of a nude Donald Trump with a micro penis. This was at a time I think we can all remember where seemingly everybody was talking about Trump and this attention-grabbing painting definitely did go viral on social media. It's actually also her probably her most famous project. If you type in Ilma Gore into Google, it will be the first thing that comes up. Gore alleges that this painting brought her a lot of attention and press, but that it wasn't always good attention. She claims that this painting of Donald Trump caught the attention of his supporters and landed her a black eye in spring of 2016 when she was walking near her studio in LA. According to Ashley Ilmagore, three men pulled up beside her in a Honda Civic. One man got out of the car, punched her in the face, and shouted, Trump 2016, before jetting off, leaving her with bruising and a black eye. This story made headlines. She got even more press and even appeared in CNN's LA studio at one point to share her side of the story on live television. Let's listen to a clip of that. An artist who painted a nude portrait of Donald Trump says she was punched in the face by one of his supporters. Ilma posted a photo on Instagram of the bruises which she suffered to her face and Ilma joins us now 
in the studio here in Los Angeles. Thank, Thank you so for coming in. Thank you for having you me. Stood up Bruce yeah. Harder yeah. And the red eye. Thankfully, the swelling's gone down. Yeah. And you know, thankfully, it wasn't anything worse than yeah. a black eye. Yeah. How, how did a car full of Trump supporters seemingly sort of randomly driving by recognize you and, and, and jump out and, and do this? I, I'm not sure if it was to do with the protests happening in Orange County or if someone by my house has actually noticed me before and stalked me out, but I have had so many violent threats online through email, through because social media. Because of the painting. And what did the threats say? I mean, give us a sense of the gist. Just horrible things all directed from, at you, but yeah. saying specifically about the painting. I mean, one says specifically this is a disgusting painting. You better put extra locks on your doors. You better wa watch your back. You know, we're going to find your address. Ridiculous things from shooting me in the head to rape. It's, awful. it's awful. horrible. Did you expect this when you did the painting? I mean, it's Donald Trump nude. Right. So I expected a reaction I could have never imagined it to go this far. Now, despite telling the story to multiple media outlets, the LAPD told the LA Times that there was no evidence that Gore's claim that she was physically assaulted even occurred. When asked about altercations with Trump supporters in general, the LAPD spokesperson also told the LA Times that there was, quote, nothing that indicates that has been happening. Gore's fascination with Trump continued. She even went on to say that his attorney, Michael Cohen, was trying to contact her repeatedly from a blocked phone number to object to the painting. Now, in 2016, Michael Cohen was extremely busy, but he did take time out of his busy schedule to deny to the press that he has ever contacted Elma Gore about her nude painting of Donald Trump with a micro penis. So that's a claim that's not backed up, and it's actually kind of a funny one, in my opinion, that she had a presidential candidate's attorney, you know, going out of his way to say that, no, I, we've not done anything with this painting. Elma Gore's claims, though, don't stop there. She went on to appear on the, quote, What's Underneath podcast, where she talked about all the negative attention that she was getting from people objecting to her art, as well as this claim that she was kidnapped by a Trump supporter in an Uber. Yeah, she says that she was kidnapped by a Trump supporter in an Uber. Here's a clip on that. There's article upon article and interview upon interview about this. I'm getting death threats and people from Republicans or yeah, I th well, just people um, at my house. People showing up at my house. Um, yeah. I got kidnapped in an Uber. It was in an wait, Uber. Wait, wait, wait. Wait. <laughs> yes. wait, what? I got in an Uber and someone had recognized me because I did CNN. Or it was at the time where I was doing I was doing a lot of press for the painting at the time. So it's not like... Were they just calling you off the hook once it went out, once it came up? Yeah. Um, anyway, I'd gotten an Uber and this person was very angry at me. Um, and saying what? Just, yeah, what was that? What, were the, what was like the general reaction? Well, it reaction? started off like, oh... Uh, in the Uber or in general and like, like what were, what was 50, 50, um, mostly it was a lot of support and a lot of negativity. It was yeah. very truly 50, 50, mm -hmm. just like the election. Um, and then obviously being physically assaulted as well. Wait, that's the Uber. Uh, no, oh. that was, uh, that was, um, down the street from my studio. 
I will say that I do know it's possible for people to be kidnapped with Ubers. I actually have a good friend that had a pretty scary situation when she was visiting Philadelphia for a football game. She and her friend were in a taxi and the driver just would not stop and let them out. So he ended up taking them on a joy ride for I think an hour. And while on the ride, they had to call the local police who was fortunately able to locate them on the road, pull the vehicle over so the girls could get out. So I do know that these stories do happen. However, no evidence or police reports have been offered that back up Elle McGuire's claim that she was kidnapped by an Uber driver. There really is a lot that you could say about Elle McGuire's art, but I think what's most notable about all of this is a huge learning curve for her. She reaped the benefits of getting a ton of press when tapping into a hot button social issue like the 2016 presidential election She received a ton of attention and praise from these attacks that she claimed happened while also offering no evidence. And even without evidence, the media ate it up. So was there a lesson there? As long as you're tapping into a social cause that a lot of people care about, can you make allegations and have them believed while offering no evidence? It's an interesting thought. So after hearing all of this, you might be asking yourself, okay, but like, what does any of this have to do with Ryan Warner or Marilyn Manson? Well, yes. Fresh reminder, Elma Gore has never met Manson, but she has been closely linked to his ex-girlfriend, Evan Rachel Wood. Manson and Wood dated each other on and off from 2006 into 2011. Wood and Gore are linked dating back to approximately 2012 when Gore was in a romantic relationship with Wood's personal assistant, Erica Summers, who also, I believe, worked for Manson previously before Wood. Evan Rachel Wood and Elma Gore forged a relationship that was both personal and professional. They dated for a period of time, but also became activist buddies. They worked alongside California State Senator Susan Rubio to advocate for passage of the Phoenix Act, a bill designed to expand the statute of limitations and abuse cases in the state of California. This would give victims more time to heal before seeking justice in the court of law, which is something I think we can all agree is largely a positive cause. To take this activism nationwide, Evan Rachel Wood also launched a Phoenix Act nonprofit as well that has a mission to pass similar legislation in all 50 states. Elma Gore was employed by the Phoenix Act, and I believe she worked on things like outreach initiatives, some types of promotional materials, various things. The Phoenix Act nonprofit was founded in 2019 and would then later mysteriously closed it on Valentine's Day 2022. The timing of that was odd because the Phoenix Act itself has definitely not passed in all 50 states. However, Phoenix Act bills were making their way through the legislative process in other states, including states like New York. So the timing of her quietly shutting this down in February 2022 is kind of an odd thing. I can see that potentially she might need a break, but there's a lot of people that found a nonprofit and then take a break. It's not necessary to completely terminate the entire nonprofit, but we're not talking about the Phoenix Act today. We'll save that for another time. As far as the Phoenix Act nonprofit goes, however, Ashley Gore's personal LinkedIn profile does say that her relationship with the nonprofit came to an end in December 2021. Elma Gore also appeared alongside her 
pal and activist buddy Evan Rachel Wood in the two-part documentary called Phoenix Rising. This project was directed by Amy Berg and centered around abuse allegations of Wood against Marilyn Manson, as well as lightly touching on her interests in legislation. Part one of the documentary debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2022, and both parts are currently available to watch on HBO. Personally, I think it's a rather one-sided and exploitive documentary that offers no clear indication of actual wrongdoing by anyone, but that's a whole different conversation. Enter Marilyn Manson. So all of this work of Ashley Elmagore was being done largely under the radar. That is until Brian Warner, aka Marilyn Manson, delivered a lawsuit against her on her birthday, remember that, on March 2nd, 2022. Happy birthday, Ms. Gore. Here's a lawsuit. And trust me when I say she didn't take the news well, but we'll get to that in a second. I know that I personally had never heard of this woman before Manson fought a lawsuit against her, but I was curious if maybe I just was living under a rock because sometimes I do. So I shared a poll on my Instagram and my Twitter profiles on the subject with more than 400 users weighing in. The results were clear. It wasn't even close. 90% of people reported that they also had never heard of Ashley Gore before Manson's lawsuit was made public and only 10% of people said that they had. So what's he complaining about? Well, within his lawsuit, Manson alleges that ex-fiance Evan Rachel Wood and Gore, who, reminder, has never even met the man, were engaged in nefarious conduct to orchestrate a hoax against him and coerce multiple women into naming him as an abuser in February 2021. So let's check the record. Yes, multiple women who had slept with Marilyn Manson, including Evan Rachel Wood, did come forward naming him as an abuser in February 2021. Following that, he was immediately, immediately dropped by his record label, fired from two television series, released by his talent agent, and has since largely lived in hiding. The impact of this well-orchestrated PR campaign that included several major media appearances was huge. He's since released no new music, not toured, or even sat down for an interview. In fact, we've only heard a few statements from Manson since all of this went down. In February 2021, Manson issued a statement on his Instagram saying, obviously my art and my life have long been magnets for controversy, but these claims about me are horrible distortions of reality. My intimate relationships have always been entirely consensual with like-minded partners, regardless of how and why others are now choosing to misrepresent the past. That is the truth. Another year went by of silence from Marilyn Manson until a follow-up statement was released on March 2nd, 2022 that reads, there will come a time when I can share more about the events of the past year. Until then, I'm going to let the facts speak for themselves. He hits publish, then drops the link for everyone to read his lawsuit, and the rest is internet history. That brings us to the grand finale, discussing all of the shenanigans within Marilyn Manson's lawsuit of nefarious conduct he alleges Elma Gore was actively engaged in. To celebrate making it to this point, I'm going to have a sip of bourbon. Delicious. 
If consuming alcoholic beverages while listening to this podcast, I encourage you to drink responsibly. I also want to put a warning out that I do not advise making a drinking game out of the number of times I'm going to remind you that El McGuire has never met Manson because that could end badly. Drink responsibly. So let me tell you what these girls have been up to. Because Evan Rachel Wood, she is a part of this. She is known as one of the two parties Manson is sued. However, obviously, this episode is more focused on Ilma Gore. But if you want to look into Evan Rachel Wood, there is a lot more um, that can be said about her, of which we'll get to in future episodes. So let's get into it. Within his lawsuit, Marilyn Manson rehashes the history that he and Evan Rachel Wood dated off and on from 2006 through 2010. And for 10 years, a decade since they split, Evan Rachel Wood never once accused him of abuse. In fact, she actually went out of her way to be very positive about him and their time together. That is until around the time period of 2016, where she got more closely connected with Ilma Gore, who Manson says is a, quote, grifter who understood that an organized attack on Warner could be beneficial to them both. So they set off to impersonate an actual federal agent and draft a forged FBI letter that Evan Rachel Wood would go on to file in court in not just one, but two states. Yeah, not just one, but two states. And I did cover this briefly in the first episode of this podcast, but that's not even an allegation. That is a fact. Two states, Tennessee and California. But the fun did not stop there. One of the things you might notice when you kind of look into the different women who have accused Marilyn Manson of abuse is that they all happen around the same time period, 2010 through 2011. And that is not by accident. That is a very specific time period where Marilyn Manson was employing a woman named Ashley Walters as his personal assistant. Ashley Walters has gone on to say that she had all these repressed memories of abuse that came flooding back in fall 2020. Her case was dismissed for not arguing enough facts, that's what the judge says, to overcome a statute of limitations. Within his lawsuit, Manson alleges, and later goes on to show proof of this, that Ashley Walters and Elma Gore were using personal login information and contacts that Ashley Walters had access to from her time of employment as his assistant for outreach to other women that he had slept with. I'll explain why in a moment, as well as to hack into his online accounts and impersonate him online. Now, we have seen some evidence of this already. Marilyn Manson's legal team has provided screenshots of the women conversing and Ashley saying, this is the guy who managed his website and yada yada. Now, as for why they were reaching out to women that he had relationships with, Oma Gore was on an outreach mission. At that time, in fall 2020, the Phoenix Rising documentary was majorly in the works and director Amy Berg as well as Evan Rachel Wood, wanted to have this kind of like roundtable discussion of multiple survivors of Marilyn Manson gathering together to trade their stories and bond over this shared experience. Ashley Walters, source of the personal login credentials, Evan Rachel Wood, and Ashley Ilmagore were all present for this survivors meeting. Now, some of the women that Ilmagore reached out to obviously were in attendance. Some of them were not. One of the women that she reached out to that did not attend is a fabulous woman named Greta Awara who has an outstanding YouTube channel that you definitely should check out. Elma Gore reached out over email to Greta 
on October 15th, 2020, saying, I know this is a strange way to reach out, but my name is Ilma. I work with the Phoenix Act. I run it alongside Evan Rachel Wood. We are organizing a group of people to meet up in LA and Zoom or Skype in to talk about experiences they had that might be similar to yours. I'm not sure that you would be interested in participating. I mean, you aren't obligated to speak, but if you wanted to listen in, that would be fine. It's a small group and you are personally invited. If you wanted to know more first, I'd be happy to jump on the phone or email more details. Best, Ilma. So upon receiving this email, Greta Aurora says that she was confused and didn't respond, but hung on to it. This email came at an interesting time. October 15, 2020 was just five days before the staged survivors meeting scene in Phoenix Rising. So the purpose of Oma's outreach, and by the way, I'm reading off of exact emails that she has turned over to Marilyn, Greta has turned over to Marilyn Manson's team. Oma's intentions were pretty clear for why she was reaching out in October 2020 because the survivors meeting was also filmed in October 2020, just five days after this. On January 22nd, Oma sent Greta a follow-up email saying, Hi Greta, I'm close with Evan Rachel Wood. I wanted to reach out and speak to you on the phone on behalf of the Phoenix Act and very important information if anything, just to listen. Best, Ilma. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but it actually just cracks me up that she's name dropping Evan Rachel Wood as if she's like this super, super well-known actress and not somebody who's largely just starred in indie projects. But she's also saying, um, I wanted to speak to you on the phone on behalf of the Phoenix Act as if anybody knows who that is, let alone a beautiful European woman who lives overseas multiple time zones away. I think it's the boldness of that. The you should just know who we are kind of thing. Almost like these women should be flattered that Ilmo is deeming them worthy of reaching out to. In addition to sending emails, Ilma Gore was also creating email accounts, like a fictitious email account by the name Brian H. Warner with his birth year at gmail.com, an account that was apparently used as far back as fall 2019, where the women were manufacturing communications as though they came from Marilyn Manson, as well as distributing links to illicit child porn, which by the way is illegal, on his behalf, without his knowledge. Manson's lawsuit reads, from in or around September 2019 until the present, Gore used fake email accounts pretending to be Warner to create correspondence that she believed would be harmful to Warner and bolster the allegations levied against him. One such fake email account created and controlled by Gore was bhwarner1969 at gmail.com, bhwr Brian Hugh Warner's initials, and 1969 is the year he was born. Mailer Manson, I don't know why I just slipped into <laughs> some Southern twang there, but Marilyn Manson nor his legal team um, had any knowledge of this email existing. So Brian Warner slash Marilyn Manson did not create this email account and he's never used it. Interestingly, it then goes on to say, for example, upon information and belief in or around September 2019, Gore used these fake email accounts to send and receive emails containing links to pornography. Upon information and belief, these links are believed to have contained prohibited content as the URLs currently do not work. So it sounds like these 
illegal, no longer active links were to child pornography, which is obviously illegal, as well as illegal to distribute it. So no matter who created this fictitious email, it seems like they were doing so to spread child porn, which is illegal, to allegedly frame or try to frame Manson for spreading or sending child porn, which is obviously illegal. So to frame somebody a very, very illegal crime, they also did that crime. Interesting. Another use of these fictitious email accounts that Manson claims is that Gore used these fake email accounts to create documents that looked like he was communicating with attorneys about a criminal investigation. In one such email, dated February 8th, 2021, Days after Wood and several others had made fictitious claims of abuse against Warner, B. H. Warner, 1969, received an email from a person purporting to be writing on behalf of Warner's attorney. However, the email's purported sender did not work for or ever work for that attorney. Warner first learned of these fake email accounts and fake emails described in fall 2021 when copies of these emails were shared with him. Now, in fall 2021, Marilyn Manson's electronic devices were seized by the LA Sheriff's Department. So we don't know this, but the timing there is kind of kind of interesting. Speaking of law enforcement, have you ever heard the term swatting before? Well, it comes up in Manson's lawsuit, and he says that Omagore did this to him. So according to Chambers Law Firm located in Santa Ana, California, the legal definition for swatting is when a person tries to get police to respond to another person by creating a fake emergency. This usually happens when a person calls to make a false report that prompts an emergency response. So let's go back in time to February 2021. February 3rd, let's set the scene. Elle McGuire picks up her phone and calls the FBI, who at that same time she was forging a fake letter from, by the way. So she gives them the ring and she says that she is a good friend of Manson and has been unable to reach him and is concerned for his safety. Well, okay, I hate to repeat this, yet again, but Ilma Gore has never met Marilyn Manson, so she's definitely not his friend. She definitely wouldn't know if he was in any kind of distress whatsoever on February 3rd, 2021, and yet she's making a phone call to the FBI, who she at that point had already drafted a fake FBI letter that Evan Rachel Wood had circulated to at least her father and her own attorney and was a month away from filing in family court. So Ilma was already doing that, but she just decided to have a little bit more fun, pick up the phone, call the FBI, say she's good friends with somebody she's never met, concerned for their safety. And from that call, the FBI turned it over to the LAPD, who sent multiple squad cars, as well as a helicopter to his private residence. And as the perfect little cherry on top, TMZ and other paparazzi were tipped off to be there as well. So it was quite the spectacle of a scene, so much so that Marilyn Manson ultimately moved because his private home had been so publicly ousted to the world, especially at a time when everybody was hating him. Last year sat there thinking, okay, well, we don't know for a fact that Ilma Gore was connected to this swatting phone call whatsoever. 
The phone caller who called the FBI used her real name and the name that they were given was Elma Gore. So she used her own name to do this. I mean, you cannot make this up. There's debate online between people that this is technically swatting or not, even though it does, from my research, line up with the legal definition of swatting in the state of California. Either way, it's making a false report to law enforcement about somebody that you've never ever even met. I'm just trying to sit here and think about what would prompt me to do something like that. Like that's just beyond reason. Ever since March 22, when Manson filed this lawsuit, the media has really loved to hype it up as a defamation lawsuit about abuse allegations, which really is not entirely true. Yes, there is a defamation clause within Manson's lawsuit, but I want to make clear that it has nothing to do with Evan Rachel Wood or these other women that he has had relations with coming forward and saying that that they were abused. To date, Marilyn Manson has not sued a single woman that he has slept with for coming forward and saying that she was abused within the course of her relationship. He has, however, sued his ex, Evan Rachel Wood and Ashley L. McGuire over spreading extremely false claims about a short film that he made way back in the 90s. So let's set the scene. It's 1996. Marilyn Manson's band was in the early phases of their career and Lincoln to artists like Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, who had actually kind of done a similar project to what I'm going to talk about, which is a short snuff film called Groupie. So the scene of this short film was that a young woman sought out and showed up unannounced at the home of her favorite rock musician. And upon arrival, she kind of stepped into a scene of horror, essentially. The film starred an actress by the name Paula Weiss, as well as Manson himself in his bandmate Twiggy. Now, if you're thinking, hmm, this, this groupie film sounds fun, slow your roll because it's never been released. However, short clips of it did appear in a tour DVD that Manson released called Dead to the World. The actress was age 21 or 22 at the time. She's filed a sworn statement to support Manson's case that she really enjoyed working on the project, that she wasn't abused at all during the filming of it, that she actually was really engaged in the creative process, that she had a lot of fun, she wasn't traumatized. Overall, it was a positive experience. Now, that did not stop Ashley Ilmagor from talking about this film that she's never seen, made by a man that she's never met, and saying that it was child pornography that contained abuse of a minor that actually went on to later commit suicide because she was so traumatized by the events during filming. Let's remember that the actress herself has come forward to completely, entirely refute that. Plus, I think it never hurts to also remind people that Gore has never met Marilyn Manson. So a woman named Michelle Meyer, who, well, this is a coincidence. Elma Gore put her phone number on this fake FBI letter. But Michelle Meyer came forward with a declaration for Manson's counsel that reads that Gore had told her 
that the girl in this groupie film was underage, that she was 16 years old when it was filmed, that Warner knew the girl was underage, that she didn't consent to what happened during filming, that the film was child pornography, and that the girl had a quote, hard time with what happened during filming and the girl committed suicide. <laughs> I hate, I'm sorry to laugh, but how many actresses have you confused in a film that you've never seen that you thought, well, she was definitely a minor and then she went on to kill herself. And let's, let's forget about the fact that this is a short film, right? I don't want to break it to El Maguire, but I watch a lot of horror movies and spoiler alert, they're not real. So remember when I told you that Elma Gore did not take the news well when Marilyn Manson filed his lawsuit against her? Well, she didn't. In fact, she took to her Twitter account <laughs> where she published a bold statement. Bring it the fuck on, you rapist, pedophile, motherfucker. I wish I could do an Australian accent, but I'm not going to even try. Sorry. She went on to say that before publishing images, be aware that these photos and images from my hard drives have been registered with the U.S. Copyright Office. This documentation names me as the rightful copyright owner. I have not, nor will I give permission to use them. <laughs> so Elmagor went on to delete these tweets. But in October 2020, I'm sorry, but in October 2022, she sat down for a video deposition where she was asked about all the information she was spreading about this groupie film being being gratuitous child porn that led to a woman committing suicide. She sat down fielding questions from Manson's attorney, Howard E. King, who asked her about these tweets, for one thing, where she said <laughs> that, yes, she understands that is serious what she was saying. To which Howard King moves on to say, well, that's a derogatory comment about Mr. Warner, right? And Ms. Gore says, I disagree. I disagree that it's derogatory. To which Howard King says, you disagree that's derogatory? To which Ms. Gore said, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cannot with this woman. Now, I know this episode has been dragging on for a while, so I wanted to close it out on probably my favorite thing we've learned about Elma Gore to date. Do you remember way back at the start of this podcast episode when I told you that Elma Gore is the identical twin sister of a, her sister Brighton? Well, what if I told you that Brighton Gore has submitted a sworn statement, but not to support her sister, but instead to support Manson? And what if I told you her assistance to Manson's team does not drop there? Brighton Gore gave Manson's team, essentially, a smoking gun. Let's take it back to fall 2020. This is around the time that the fake FBI letter was starting to be drafted. And within Marilyn Manson's lawsuit, you see screenshots of this letter being drafted. And then a couple months later, you learn a little bit more about these screenshots, as well as a few other screenshots featured throughout his lawsuit. Now, remember those tweets of Ilma Gore saying that the images were hers, seemingly taking ownership of them and those tweets before quickly deleting it, she clearly recognized where they came from. And they came from an iPad that Ilma Gore was using when she was staying with Brighton, her twin sister. Brighton observed a few interesting things related to the fake FBI letter, which I encourage you to just go to justiceformarilamanson.com and go under fake FBI letter because all of this 
will be there. But when Ilma Gore left town, the iPad of hers had a cracked screen. So Ilma Gore's iPad Pro was damaged. And so when she left her sister Brighton's home, she allegedly said to her, well, here you can just have this. The kids can play with it, whatever, and left. Okay, so a few months after this, this was like spring, I believe, of 2021. A few months go by, and it's now fall 2021, and let's let's be honest, the sisters are not on good terms at this point. So Brighton ends up remembering this iPad, and she powers it up. And when she powers on this iPad, she finds a ton of communications of Elma's that is quite damning for her, including drafting of this fake FBI letter, SMS messages, text message exchanges between Ilma Gore and Ashley Walters with login information that Ashley Walters had obtained when she was previously employed by Manson, outreach from Ilma Gore to others trying to recruit them into their staged survivors meeting in this Phoenix Rising documentary. Let's see what else was on there. Conversations about the groupie video being child porn, Amongst many, many other things, Brighton's eyes have to just be kind of like bulging out of her head, kind of like a cartoon character. But instead of turning the iPad over to her sister, she turned it over to Marilyn Manson's team. And so that is where you see all of these different screenshots coming into play. And we keep seeing more and more and more evidence as this litigation process evolves coming out of this iPad. Manson's legal team had this iPad forensically analyzed by an expert who found on it email messages, text messages, iMessages, documents, and a variety of multimedia files. When I look at life, I often look at life in terms of a football game. And in terms of if you're going to apply this lawsuit to a football game, I'm telling you, we're not even through the first quarter. We are so early on within this lawsuit. So I imagine that we haven't even begun to see the extent of the evidence that's on this iPad Elma Gore was using. I cannot even imagine the audacity. So as I've read everything that I have about Ashley Elma Gore, the biggest thing that fascinates me is the question, why? What is Ashley Elmagor's motivation? Why would somebody who had come from basically nothing at a young age, why would she go on to sacrifice or at least put at risk the level of success she had achieved as an artist? Why would she get her hands so tied up in dismantling the career of someone she's never even met? Obviously, her connection lies through Evan Rachel Wood. She's also connected to another accuser named Esme Bianco. The three of them launched a global campaign in 2019 called I Am Not Okay. And it came out at a time where the Me Too movement was at its prime. But all in all, the hashtag I Am Not Okay campaign was very short-lived and fizzled out after about six months of its launch. But while working on getting this, quote, movement off the ground, Ashley Elmagor published a tweet of herself. It's actually a really inviting photo of her at a younger age where she shares with the world that she's a victim of sexual assault. Reading her tweet, my heart, it, it really did immediately go out to her. So maybe, perhaps, she's serious and really cares about advocating for victims of violence. And maybe that is a cause she truly 
deeply cares about. But then why would she go to the lengths to manufacture an obviously fake FBI letter? Why would she be dumb enough to use a real FBI agent's name? Why would she call the FBI then and request a police present at Manson's private residence in February 2021, but under false pretenses that he's in you know, a threat to himself, why would she call the FBI requesting a police presence at Manson's private residence for a quote welfare check as a, as a, when she's never even met the man? Why does her iPad house communications with Manson's personal assistant sharing his private account information? Why was she circulating a fake tale that Manson abused a minor in a film she's never seen when that's not true. Why was she lining up PR interviews for the, the female accusers and helping them draft their stories when coming forward? Was she a communications director for all of this? I mean, who knows? I just cannot understand. And in the back of my mind, as I think about all of this, I can only land on there has to be one of three things going on. Either one, Ashley Elmagor believes that Manson is a super abuser or two, she saw a PR opportunity and how shaping a hoax against Manson, which would be pretty easy to do already because of his long controversial public image or three, something else entirely that hasn't yet come to light. It's certainly a mystery. And if there's one thing that I can say since looking into these cases much more closely, nothing is really what it seems there's a lot we do not yet know, and that's why we can sit here and chat about it together. So on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting. Ashley Elmagor is a, is a figure attached to this that not a lot of people have heard of, but she certainly has been busy. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast and keeping an open mind. In between episodes, find much more information and updates at justiceformarylandmanson.com. There you can also find links to join my monthly newsletter, which will provide case updates for you straight in your inbox, as well as, of course, links to social media and a whole lot more.